Good evening and welcome to the final episode of Ethically Ambiguous to Law Students Figuring Out, Figuring Things Out. Today um, I am the host, Tiffany, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lori. Hi. Hi. Um, we are going to do a final summary, I think, of the term, all things that we have learned through ethics throughout the year, going through um, some of the major highlights, and then we thought we'd end it as well by discussing cases that we watched. Unfortunately, given COVID times, we weren't able to attend an actual court case, so we've resorted to watching some online. And now, bear in mind, they're Supreme Court cases, so the bar is likely higher. <laughs> but uh, we thought we'd just do a reflection on sort of um, anything that we picked out from that. So I hope you enjoy. So, Lori, I guess I'll start by asking, um, if, is there any uh, maybe major overall reflection you'd like to share from the term? Um, I think what I've been surprised at has been the level of like flexibility there still is within the ethics in terms, not in terms of like specific duties, but just in terms of the profession still has so much to grow within. I don't know why, but I always assume like professional regulations are like set in stone and they're immovable, which doesn't make sense because we've moved from the past. But I think a lot about the, um, how we do like billable hours and how we uh, do like client payments, especially and how there's so much nuance with that and how there's so much research that these aren't like optimal ways of providing the service but we're still seem to be so stuck mm -hmm. in them so I think yeah I've just learned that ethics is like this continuously moving beast to that you know we're learning now but hopefully as we go through the um, as our careers it will also change as society reflects change and needs change really good insight I I myself was struck by um, more so like class related I was I was shocked each exercise that we had um we went through these um scenarios where i had i guess an opinion where to me it seemed like it was very obvious what the answer was and then we and generally as a group we would decide that that was in fact the answer and then get our our assignments back only to discover that no there was actually a lot more flexibility in that than i thought so i thought it was a little more rigid if that makes sense, sometimes actually to the point where it felt like um, it, like I had some exercises where I thought, no, this is absolutely ethically wrong. No way. Absolutely not. And no, we got, we even had, well, this particular one, we had a debate um, amongst our, our group members and it was, um, it was the big hypothetical question. And I can't remember what exercise it was now, but about um, submitting uh, false evidence to the court um, it was sort of uh, like he took the evidence home. Um, it was a handwriting sample and then um, wrote, did, a, did his own handwriting sample and handed in his own handwriting sample rather than the actual evidence and held on to it to prove a point that the expert couldn't actually determine what like the fault that this was in fact not the same one so that the to basically to discredit the expert. And our team had this huge debate about whether or not that was okay. And, and I remember uh, one or two, I believe in my team even said that that lawyer should be commended because they got the result for their client because and discrediting the expert witness, there was, you know, in, in some ways there was an argument about whether or not that was the only way. And I just remember at the time being, no, absolutely. This is fraud. Like, what are we, what are you talking about? Like I, I categorically uh, disagree. Like, I, I don't see how this is right in any shape or form. And so we ultimately compromised on 
changing the language so that it wasn't as strong when we made the suggestion to say like, oh, uh, perhaps could be commended as like an alternative argument. And we got the uh, feedback from Professor Clayfeld and he was like, no, you know, there was more to this um, point about uh, that lawyer being commended for getting the results for their client. And I was just shocked. Like, I can't believe that would have been allowed. And, and that's sort of the theme that carried through throughout the whole term was that I would have this idea that, no, this, this to me is not even a gray area. It's a, it's a black and white. And in fact, no, it was more along um, the gray shade than I thought. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the exercises were really great in terms of, um, and, I, and I like that they're randomized, I think, and, and that they were changing um, because you kind of were constantly um, in conflict to, you know, not necessarily in conflict, obviously everyone was collegial, but in conflict <laughs> with ideas that, you know, weren't your own or weren't reflective of maybe your own experiences. Um, and it really forced you to kind of take a second and look back. And I think that hits another point, which is what I've learned this semester, is that do not rush anything <laughs> if you get even, like, a hair on your back is raised. Like, you have to sit down and take time because there's so much law that feels so rushed all the time. Mm -hmm. Having worked just one summer, just, like, someone walk into and be like, I need this by X day. And usually it's, you know, just research, so it's not in itself an ethical question, but just, you know, appreciating that and seeing the consequences of not taking the time. Like, I think that's also a thing I've learned this semester is like, if you are in conflict at all, just sit down, you know, maybe call your friends from this course and be like, hey, this is like, you know, without disclosing any information, be like, what would you do in a situation kind of like this? Mm -hmm. um, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. That's a, oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna say that's like the, the taking the time has really wow hardwired my brain from this term. Yeah, I uh, I gotta say I think it highlighted um, sort of a a weakness of mine, if you will, or um, an area of an improvement, we'll call it. Um, that <laughs> I I think sometimes I I I assess the situation and have my mind made up about what it is, and I think sometimes I will I'm too quick to dismiss ideas that don't fit within like my perception of, of what it should be. And so I think that's something that I'm going to need to work on um, for myself in the future is to not like dismiss um, information that might be counterintuitive to my point or, or, or in fact, like that's going to be the strongest um, benefit to me if I can recognize that so that I can address it because um, not to jump into this uh, case that we're going to go through later, like when, um, to give my reflection of a case that happened. But one of the lawyers, when he started off at the Supreme Court, that was actually the approach that he took was to immediately, he made his opening statement about this is what this case is about. And then he said, and here are the two points that my friends are going to tell you um, their position. And here's why it's wrong, essentially. I mean, like a lot nicer than that. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. He's starting immediately with the counter arguments and dispelling those. And I thought that's an interesting, interest, interesting strategy. Um, and one that, yeah, I think I personally, I need to, to be a little more mindful of that before making up my mind so quickly. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, it's one of those things that there's obviously very harsh lines in, in ethics, and there's lines you can't cross. But there's also lines that, you know, maybe aren't won't get you in technical trouble, mm -hmm. um, but are kind of conditions of 
you know, the legal society as a whole, like certain things that people don't do, but, you know, um, I try to like skate between these words. Like they're not, you know, you won't get in trouble for them, but yeah. there's like things as a group, we've all been like, yeah, we're not going to do that. That's like, mm-mm, not good, et cetera. Um, and I think we've kind of, you know, this course really forced you to look at what those lines were like, like which are the actual rules you cannot break and which ones are, you know, things you picked up along the way, but are just kind of a habit of the like, you know, bar as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, those, those, I think what you're saying, like those um, gray areas, I guess, if you'd call them that, where it's not, like you said, it's not a hard and fast rule. Those, I think, highlight how over time things have even shifted because society is always changing, right? So, I mean, what we think is okay, like 60 years ago is maybe not okay today. So, those areas, I think, of, of that you're feeling now that are sort of like gray areas are maybe points where the like things might be shifting in the future so our perception of like what is ethical now that that could be a signal that maybe going forward we we want to rethink this and and sort of like rejig those areas i mean i i a big one as well like when we talked about like the government uh we got into government lawyers and and general counsel for a firm and this idea of like lawyers as gatekeepers right i mean this was this this is sort of like a more um more prominent discussion now especially more so whenever anytime there's like a, a big scandal i mean you know like I said the 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 um enron and and then even the snc lavalin um issue with jody wilson Raybold, when that came up that was really highlighting these i feel like these big scandals really have a way of of shifting uh, legal ethics in a maybe maybe pushing it where it was already going to go and, and in some ways maybe in a new direction. And, and then we're all sort of like scrambling to be like, okay, well, where's, where are the lines now? Maybe they're not as clear anymore. Yeah, that's really a good point. And I think we even touched on this a little bit last week, but kind of talking about um, the center of the reason that we have ethics, right? Like these things that the courts have found um, to have, both a constitutional origin when you're looking at solicitor-client privilege, but also just the purpose of of the, the orientation of the bar as a whole is like always both, you know, t- for your client to do whatever you can for your client, but also to ensure that, you know, there's um, the ultimate goal is justice, right? Like you have responsibility both to the bar and to your client simultaneously and constantly and just trying to figure out how to balance those situations and you can see where the the rules have kind of fallen on one side or the other but in those in-between moments or in those spectrums knowing where your duty as a lawyer lies I think has um, been an interesting question and I don't know if I've really had my head around it all yet Um, (laughs) I mean for the course material sure but like in terms of how I feel about it I'm not sure but I think it's really interesting I think two things will uh be either you'll come down more on one side or the other when you get into practice because I think oftentimes especially in law school and I know I've found that it's these like lofty ideas kind of thing and sure maybe this is is what we would say on paper but then the reality when you get into the situation and you have to make a very snap decision like a decision really quickly on your feet and you don't have the luxury to sit and like contemplate all these different things so you really you don't want to you don't want to go in with your mind made up I guess what I'm saying is when 
in a situation, you sort of had to have this flexibility. So you kind of, you kind of need to, to have a sense of yourself, a sense of like the, the both sides of it. And then to be able to shift with that as the situation calls for it, because um, without like giving too much detail, I had a, a situation this summer when I was working and to me, it seemed like a strong ethical dilemma in, in some ways, so maybe not strong, maybe strong is not the right word to use, but it was uh, certainly presented itself as an ethical dilemma. And, and then once I understood it from my boss, like how, like there was a lot more to it that I, I didn't quite understand, then it became less so. So I think as like, as practice, as you get more knowledgeable and more experienced, how you take these ethical theories that we're learning from class and apply them in practice, maybe like might clear up some of these issues if that, if, if I'm articulating myself well. <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, there's, I keep thinking of like the things that have, uh, I, that I found as a highlight and I took a couple notes, um, but um, I think also the concept of um, like, like avoiding conflicts of interest to me is like so interesting especially in situations where you're working in a firm and you're just especially in a small city working in a firm and the inevitable um, conflicts that will arise in that kind of situation and knowing how to analyze that. Mm -hmm. um, you don't always necessarily like some firms have a, a very rotund procedure ensuring that there's no uh, sort of conflicts involved. But I always think of, you know, depending on where your practice will take you, like that could be like a major aspect of your practice and ensuring that there's no conflicts. Yeah. Can you imagine um, trying to do that? I guess if you're like a one person show and you don't have the same technical capabilities, but then again, perhaps if you are a one person show, the chance of you having um, conflict of interest go, goes down drastically because you, you know, like the scope of your practice is probably not big enough to um, make that an issue. So, you know, if you are in a bigger firm, like I said, you might see it more and you might learn how to deal with that more as opposed to like in a small firm, you might not actually come across it. Like you don't have the sophisticated tools to help you deal with it, but you're probably not going to come across it as often would be my guess. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's, I mean, it's all hypotheticals except for, you know, the examples that we've gone over in class. It's just something that like, just I'm picking my brain about like, mm -hmm. um, just trying to figure out like, oh, that's an interesting thing. And I'm sure that there's many methods that um, lawyers have developed over the years to make sure that they're not in violation of any issues. But yeah, um, it's just interesting that some conflicts will come into contact with more often than others. Um, like if, like, I think it was the National Railway and McCurcher, like the, I mean, if you're a big firm working for energy companies, like there's going to be some, like that's a very specialized field, right? And you're probably going to have some level of conflict of interest if you're representing two energy companies at once. But if you're in a small town, you're mostly dealing with like wills or, you know, um, real estate or stuff like that, that you're probably not going to, you, you might have a different kind of conflict, which is, you know, there's just a limited pool of people to draw from, mm -hmm. but you won't have that kind of like, you know, big encompassing, like how are we going to split these two massive companies and their work? Kind of conflict yeah well so i worked for a small um in a small town with a lawyer and there was 
quite often doing mostly real estate where um, she would work for both sides. And that's, that's a very common practice in small communities because I mean, you know, it's not, there's not enough business to sustain uh, two lawyers and uh, just for the ease of the client, but you just have them sign a form and that says, this is, this is drafted from the law society that they are aware that you're operating for both sides and what that means. You, you, you make them aware of like what that means for them in, in that case. And, and quite often, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a problem. I think maybe in a, in a situation like real estate, it's unless there was this, an issue with the particular property or something, but um, I think, I think in that case, maybe the, you're not going to have the same major issues. Like you said, that, that you might deal with in a, in a larger firm. So you maybe don't. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I just think, I just know that I came up uh, quite a bit, like I said, this summer and it was, it was just dealt with by just a single letter um, that we had uh, both parties sign and uh, you highlight like, you know, what your, what your responsibility is when you're working for both, both sides and what that means for them. You make them aware of that. So. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. So I have a question now, actually, I just, uh, I don't know, something you said earlier got me thinking. And do you remember back when we had our guest uh, Katie on and she made a comment, I believe about sometimes it can seem like all these rules that we um, drafted to get to the truth. Like if that was really like the point and the goal of uh, the law was like to, to deal and get to the truth of the matter and, and, and provide justice and how sometimes these tools sort of um, over time have kind of worked its way into possibly um, resulting in inequities because it's not producing the result that maybe it was intended to produce because it's, it's tra transformed over time. And now maybe we should have another look at them to see if these tools are serving as well, like the judiciary system or the judicial system as a whole. And I guess my, my question to you is, has your thoughts on, have your thoughts on that changed since you've, since we've now gone through the course a little more, or um, I guess, uh, do you still feel the same way you did when we originally talked about it? Um, so just to, sorry to clarify, uh, you're kind of asking along the lines of the intent of the justice system is to ensure justice, but have we kind of gotten in our own ways with these rules? Yeah, I believe like Katie had mentioned, I'm not, and I'm, I don't, I don't think you had necessarily picked a side one way or the other when we talked about it. But um, I'm just wondering if maybe now as we've moved through ethics class a little more and you've learned like more, more uh, tools and, and uh, more issues, I guess, do you, do you have another opinion on it perhaps? if we have gone away from um, this? I'm not sure if I do. I think I think it's really interesting because so many of the rules are rooted in that, you know, um, responsibility to the court. Um, and the responsibility of the court, of course, is to ensure justice. And, and likewise, you know, we have the rules um, protecting solicitor client privilege because we want to ensure pure access as well as much as possible that the um, client feels comfortable disclosing all that they can to the lawyer so that there's a, you know, efficient process and, and a just process. Mm -hmm. um, so in those ways, yeah, we are like really trying to uphold that, you know, ensuring justice. But at the same time, I think that there does need to be measures uh, on lawyers just based on the level of knowledge and power that they have within the system. I think like, and this also brings up the idea, which um, we've, we've touched on in the class as well, in dealing with um, representatives who don't have our background and knowledge. Um, I think that 
there needs to be limitations on what we can do as well. Like the, it can't be blind pursuit of justice. Like mm -hmm. if there does need to be measures to ensure that um, all sides are as equal as possible. Obviously there's lots of work that to be done there and, and reaching back to my initial point, which is like, I hope that ethics is this kind of rolling ball that's going to continue to improve um, while, while it, we get to see some improvements, but just over the trajectory of the, the bar mm -hmm. um, kind of adapting that. Did you have a similar sense? Um, yeah, I, I think my perception has perhaps changed in a sense that what I think is is just has changed. And this came up in one of my immigration classes where we talked about justice looks different to depending on what angle you. And it was in the context of a temporary foreign workers and how there was a lot of issues in that system that they seemed to create inequities for temporary foreign workers versus say permanent residents or you know Canadian citizens or any other type of um, immigration permit for work and there was a lot of issues in terms of like mobility like they could they were restricted to that particular employer so then there was like abuses that could come up and I remember you know people championing for and rightfully so that these these uh, are really serious matters and we should address these issues because they really create a lot of problems for temporary foreign workers. And I said, 100% agree with that. But then at the same time, um, I think that these measures were created to solve a problem with the immigration system that we're not getting these individuals here in the first place. And so these were sort of workarounds to help, help um, I guess, uh, it was more in the agricultural center. So people in that industry to get workers and help those individuals come to Canada and get a job where they might not have otherwise been eligible. And so if you were to ask the worker themselves what they would prefer either to be a part of the system or to not be a part of the system, like to not have it available. And I was saying that they might give you a different answer. They might say, yeah, you know what, there are all these issues with it. But without this program, I can't put food on the table for my children. I can't, I can't provide for my family. And so to them, if, if you were given the choice between um, fixing the inequities to the point that the program most likely wouldn't operate um, at all because it wouldn't be viable or to have it with the issues that it has now, they would probably choose that. And I'm not saying that that's even right, um, that, you know, there should be two, two or three tiers of, of, of individuals. I'm not, I'm not even suggesting that. I think it's, it's horrible. But what I'm saying is that who you ask in terms of what is just it depends on their perspective perspective of it so I think that really is is how my answer has changed from the conversations with uh, Katie earlier when we talked about it because I think that um, maybe my perception of justice has even changed since then I hope I hope that made sense yeah <laughs> that makes sense yeah yeah well it, and that makes me think of two um the, the the person like the perspective you take on like if you look at it from the perspective of um you have to like let go of a client because you know they're like they've told you they're they're going to break the law or etc there's like a, a reason that ethically you have to drop the client and from your side like that's the just move because you can't represent that client for xyz reasons but mm -hmm. to that client that's like a very unjust move because now they have to go find and go through the whole process again um and uh, establish a new uh, lawyer. Um, so, it, and again, like as a whole, you know, that's even a different conversation than, and kind of considering the different perspectives of the same scenario uh, is really, yeah, an enlightening thought process. 
Well, it, it makes me, it makes me think about even the law in general from when I started like before law school and, and how I thought about the law. And I was very, as you know, you know, freedom of contract, very like formalistic in a sense that these are hard and fast rules. And so we should just stick to them because it creates certainty, which then provides, um, uh, us with more tools, I guess, in a sense that it's, you know, for access to justice issues, because that's obviously a growing issue in, in our legal system. And to me, the solution was more certainty. If there's more certainty, then um, people can deal with matters even themselves. But when you introduce some of these flexible rules, um, it makes it that much harder for self reps to address the matter even themselves, or even small matters. And so that was my approach to it at the beginning when I came here was like, you know, very much like, well, just let's just stick with this. Like, let's take freedom of contract, for example, and say it doesn't matter. Two individuals can enter into a contract and uh, they shouldn't be able to get out of that as long as they're, you know, like I do agree with like duress and that type of thing. But in a sense that they should be held to it and the the ways in which that we limit them, uh, we put restrictions on not upholding the contract or whatever, then I think those should be limited. And, uh, but now my perception on that has changed because I see that having such formalistic uh, rules and, and, and a formalist approach, it really creates these inequities. And, and on, I just didn't see it maybe from another side. So if anything, law school has taught me that <laughs> to open up my mind. <laughs> well, I don't, like, so I don't then- like it. I'll just I'll still say that like I'm more comfortable with formal rules I don't I you know I I don't like it but I I appreciate it more yeah no absolutely um it's uh yeah there's and there's tons of different philosophies that we can look at in terms of that as well um and just a ton of natures that 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 rationale makes sense in um but it's true and I mean well how do you feel then I guess with the, the sort of hard and fast rules of ethics or the flexibility in some rules in ethics? Do you find that that's more liberate, liberating or more concerning for you as a future lawyer? Well, I guess the laws around uh, conflicts, I, I think um, were the ones that I had maybe the, I don't know if the biggest issue with, but maybe the more trouble, I guess, fully wrapping my head around it because it's, it seemed to me that even if individuals were consenting, they're still, if they, like, they know about this conflict issue and they're consenting to it, there still could be a way in which it would not be proper for a lawyer to act in that case. And to me, I just think, again, maybe that is my whole uh, contract uh, brain where I feel like if, if, two individuals are apprised of the matter, like all the issues that can come with it. And the lawyer says that, yes, they can, they can represent both sides fairly. Then why shouldn't they be allowed to do that? But then I think about, well, okay, maybe the two individuals think they understand the, the implications, but that's why they're actually going to a lawyer is because they don't know how to address this issue themselves. And so how can they fully consent if they don't even con- fully understand like the conceptual issues. So maybe it does need that, that measure of protection. So yeah, that's, I guess my thoughts on that. No, it makes sense. Still working uh, through it all, which is I think the important part. Um, yeah. Did you have any other like takeaways you've been kind of mulling over? 
No, I think that was the biggest one. Just that, like I said, I was, I was surprised that there's more, that there's more flexibility than, than I had perhaps envisioned. And I mean, that is, that is, that's, like I said, my learning process throughout law school, even is coming to this realization that there, there are many different aspects that you, you can't look at things on one side. Um, and, and that's hard to do, you know, it's hard to turn your mind to these issues because you, you have to like, in some ways you think, okay, I must pick a side and, and advocate fiercely. And in doing that, you can create tunnel vision. I mean, it happens in so many other professions too. look at, uh, I just mentioned the whole Dennis Olin case. That was a big issue that they cited that the, the, uh, officers got tunnel vision that they just refused to look at other, um, other suspects and other evidence because it didn't suit their theory of the matter. And I think that as lawyers, we need to be really, really careful. We don't fall into those traps. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was uh, just going to ask you if how, I guess, if you had any other final uh, thoughts yourself. It's so hard to sum up because there's so many little details that I think we've covered throughout our, uh, different topics that I mean there's still some that I take with me and of course we're in the midst of preparing for a final exam so there's lots of things I'm still um, conceptually mulling over if not um, mulling over the ins and outs for the exam purposes um, but I think it's really interesting and, and I will get into a bit of the advocacy ethics um, as we talk about the cases we viewed but I think that that ending on that well, ending-ish uh, on that kind of topic, having that near the end, I think is also very interesting um, because initially when you hear ethics, at least I did in my first year, I, I assumed ethics was, I assumed everything that happened with law was inside the courtroom, but especially ethics I thought was like a, a courtroom-centric idea. But I think what we've learned in this course is the heaviest of it is is never inside the courtroom. Um, it's, you know, how you're practicing, how you're engaging with clients, like who your duty is towards, um, you know, what sources do you have available to you to like see the bright line? Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, and you know what, isn't that actually a really good um, summation of even law school that it's like you maybe go to law school thinking that it's all about the courtroom and, and, and advocacy and, and litigation. And the fact of the matter is that's only like a very small portion of what lawyers do. And even, um, in terms of being successful in a, in a case, the legal, the, uh, the, uh, advocacy portion is a very small aspect of that. Like most of the time, um, it was drilled in that you might win or lose the case based even on your brief and, and how you, um, not just your written advocacy, but even how you characterize a matter can have implications and I don't know if, I'm not sure if you're taking like a uh, complex of law this year but uh complex of law was a a, a surprising course for me I, I like I I mean I guess I I had an idea about it but I didn't realize how nuanced it was and how um how you if you how you characterize a course in or uh, sorry a, a case in a matter can have like massive implications and so I think that um that's your your perceptions in 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 ethics are are true throughout the legal profession in general. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to get into maybe uh, talking about the cases that we observed? Um, you can, I guess, go first to see like what, uh, maybe give uh, our listeners a brief um, summation of what the, the case was about or um, 
that might not be necessary for the purpose of this or just, uh, I guess, some of your major takeaways and what level of court it was? Yeah, so again, it would have been very cool to uh, have gone to the courts. Um, I, don't, I think we both got the opportunity last term, at least in, in class purposes uh, with civil procedure. And I thought that was a really interesting experience. Um, I actually kind of wish I had remembered more about it to use that um, because <laughs> uh, the case I've done was like very interesting. Um, but I ended up actually reviewing. Um, so I did. I worked a lot with R.V. Morrison, which was a recent, I think, 2019 Supreme Court case. Um, it's a very heavy subject matter, um, so I won't go into it too much. But uh, I had spent literally a full year last year because that was our moot problem, like going through all the briefs that were submitted, all the footage, the ad advocacy within the court, like et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. And I spent so much time with that. So in choosing one to review, um, I was like, well, it'd be quite interesting, I think, to analyze this case now with, you know, a new perspective, having gone through the ethics course. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think it was uh, really interesting to see the different kind of uh, cues I picked up on, or like maybe the different rationales behind, you know, including things or not including things or saying things or not saying things um, from that ethics perspective. Um, hopefully that's not too vague. But uh, I just think it's like quite interesting um, and how the how people were, I mean, the lawyers, I should say, how they were preparing themselves again, like the topic was quite heavy and not comfortable and, and how to make sure that they were still arguing both sides, even though one side like morally obviously sticks out to you as wrong, um, perhaps and making sure that there was um, an adequate level of advocacy for all the parties, um, which uh, did you select? Well, actually, I was just going to ask, like, do you have like a specific example of perhaps like how they sort of, um, if I'm understanding you correctly, like how they chose to approach an issue that was um, sensitive? It sounds like, I mean, I'm not sure the specific case you're referring to, but it sounds like it was a really maybe like a taboo type like issue. And, and so they were had to be really um, careful in the words that they were choosing, like to do like, do, like Perhaps give me an example, I guess, of what uh, what it is your 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 um, you observed. Yeah, so it was a child learning case, and um, some of the uh, how do I put this? Some of the like arguments were, I mean, you had to make the argument, and it was a constitutional argument, uh, basically trying to knock down a section of the code that presumes, like, if you're talking to someone who identifies under an age of et cetera like mm -hmm. you're an adult and there's sexual matter involved, like you're presumed to have like knowledge that that person is of that age. And so anything that you do can count towards it. Um, and it was struck um, down as unconstitutional, but you can imagine that the types of arguments you have to make, to make that argument, mm -hmm. you know, there's a balance line there. There's being respectful of the fact that you're representing your client. And then there's also being respectful of the, the subject matter that you have to discuss. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I think those would be those cases would be really hard and would require a, I guess, a very skilled lawyer to to really like because it's like an added layer. I guess what I'm saying is like you are you already had these duties of like civility and your professionalism to the court, and now you sort of have this other layer that you have to um, that by choosing your words very carefully and how you're going to present it. Um, may impact 
the point that you're trying to make to to win the case like or not the win but you know to get the outcome that you're looking for for your for your client and yet you yeah like i said you have this responsibility that you have to be really mindful of of how you present it because it there's this like added layer i can see those cases being really really challenging yeah and it was it was interesting to take it uh, having you know gone through the case from a purely legal point because we had not done this course yet it was interesting um seeing how these lawyers who had experience in these subject matters approached it so yeah it was very interesting. Um, and what was the subject matter that you delved into? Uh, mine was a, a conflicts, or sorry, conflicts, um, contract case. It uh, dealt with uh, the duty, the role of like duty of honesty in contracts and, and negotiation and not to mislead. Um, I, I'm, I'm not even going to sit here and pretend that I fully understood uh, the main arguments, but um, it's it uh, a big part of it was a it involved um, an individual who sent an email that said that I just spoke to this person. They're under the impression that we're going to renew their contract for um, another two year term. I'll, we'll just leave it at that, even though they had already made the decision at that point that they were not um, going to renew. So they 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 knew that this person had a mis misunderstanding that they were going to get their contract renewed, and they didn't do anything to change that misunderstanding. And that's what the the case sort of centered on was with whether they had a duty at that point because they had settled their minds to the fact that they weren't going to renew the contract and therefore they were operating in bad faith because they were, they knew this person had a misunderstanding about it. And, um, so it was, and, it, and I'm, and even the evidence used was, was kind of like the language was not hundred percent clear. And maybe that's why it ended up at the Supreme court that, um, it was misleading. And, and there was a, like debates on that. And I wish I had the result of the cases of 2019, but it wasn't, uh, it was near the end of the year and I, and I don't think the it's published yet. Um, or at least I didn't find it. So I, I would have liked to have known the outcome of that case, but it, uh, it really started off. And I, I had mentioned it earlier about how this one lawyer really got up and he said what the main point was and then tackled the two uh, points against his argument that, that uh, the other side was going to rely on. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a really good strategy. Um, I don't know if it would work in, in every case, maybe if you're, case was a little more weak you wouldn't want to start in that way although um because what you wanted i would imagine like if you're looking at first impressions you want to get in the first impression that this is why the the court should decide in your favor um not necessarily uh, have to spend too much time talking about the other side's points but um so yeah i found that really interesting um in terms of like the conduct of the lawyer this particular lawyer i thought was was it was quite well. You could see it was a little bit nervous perhaps, but still skilled lawyer. But then there was another one later. I think it was maybe even an, an intervener. And I just, I actually could not listen because he talked so slow that I, I found myself like dozing, not dozing off, but like my mind going somewhere else because he spoke so slow that I just couldn't like figure out like or couldn't wait to see where he was going to go with this and I couldn't stay focused and so I thought um yet then compare this with another lawyer who she spoke so fast that I had a really hard time following because she made some really um strong um 
advocacy points on very like nuanced areas of the law. And she spoke so quickly that like you didn't have time, or at least maybe my brain doesn't work that fast to uh, process what it was she was actually saying. And before she had moved on to her next point. And so I found myself sort of thinking about these two in conflict about like, you know, finding that sweet spot between too fast and really too slow. And, and maybe there's a situation where the talking really slow would be useful and talking really fast would be useful, but really like that sweet spot in the middle seemed to be maybe what we should aim for. Yeah, that definitely rings true. It's something I've uh, always struggled with speaking quickly. I like to blame it on the fact that I'm from Newfoundland, but like, that's not a good excuse. <laughs> um, I do, yeah, same. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know, it's really interesting. I, I try to, It's it, it is unfortunate, like you mentioned, um, not unfortunate necessarily, but the Supreme Court of Canada has a level, I suppose, <laughs> you would assume representatives be at um, in terms of both like government officials, if they were ever involved and this one, they were there. And if there's any interveners, which are usually is from each of the provinces, like it tends to be a senior council that's actually going and presenting. Um, and so, you know, you don't hit any of those roadblocks or those question moments um, as you would um, if you were perhaps like at a trial uh, mm -hmm. level court, or, you know, just hearing motions. Um, yeah. I, guess is there anything when we were going through because we've mentioned a couple of like situations we've both experienced in, without giving too many details uh, within the court and how those questions some levels of, of ethics did you find anything since doing like our presentation in our uh, class on e ethics and advocacy um anything like spark to mind from previous examples of being in court and maybe perhaps that that wasn't ethically what you should be doing um I'm not sure I quite understand your question, but I think if you're asking like, uh, well, perhaps, can you just rephrase your, your question? We'll start there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're both <laughs> like a little brain dead right now. Um, I guess like we've, uh, when we've talked about other in previous podcasts, different topics, we had have had a couple of examples where we've been like, oh, something like this happened in court once and here's what happened. And, you know, that's kind of borderline. Um, but we have done, uh, an ethics and advocacy class now so I was wondering if um during that yeah. class you like anything sparked to mind in terms of like being in court and something from that class you were like oh wait that happened that wasn't supposed to happen or anything like that I don't think I can recall a specific a specific incident from previous uh times in court but I did note in this case that I watched um the other day like the supreme court one um, in terms of civility and um, the, the, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say they weren't civil. They definitely were civil. I mean, like this is also the Supreme court, like we said, but I was actually surprised at how um, biting the remarks seemed to be about, Oh, my friend said this and absolutely not this, but I mean, there really is no other way to, or at least from my understanding to really say, I disagree really with my friend's submission, but it seemed to be really like strong. And maybe it was like, I was inferring a tone that maybe wasn't there. I don't know that when they were referring to the, um, to their opponents, um, they, they still, you could said use friend, but it was, it seemed really like really aggressive, if that makes sense. And I, and I, and I picked up on that and, um, 
and I was, and I think I was, I was surprised by like, especially even at the Supreme court level that it seemed like a uh, passion kind of uh, like took over in that sense. And it was like, it was maybe borderline between like civility and zealous advocacy. And uh, it was, it was pretty close to the line, I guess, is, is in my, in my understanding of it. I mean, it's hard to learn these theories and about like civility and, and, uh, and zealous advocacy without like having examples of it to show perhaps where exactly you might cross the line. Um, But uh, that's kind of what it, it seemed like in this, this case I was listening to that it was really close to the line. And I was surprised by that, even at like the Supreme Court level. Yeah, that's so fair. And and I think some of that also comes down to just human nature and psychology. Like, you know, for a number of people uh, appearing at, before the Supreme Court of Canada is just a very unlikely uh, potential. Yeah. And so when it happens, you're like more stressed than you normally would be. Well, um, I, I actually yeah, went I mean, back and looked at, sorry to, uh, to cut you off, but I went back and looked at these two individuals and um, both of them had... A pre, had been at the Supreme Court before, so this is not um, a new experience for either of them. And so, I guess when I learned that, I was even more surprised that it that it um, that it sort of got to that point. Because, and especially when I think that one of the sides I felt was really what they were trying to do was take a really, really nuanced approach to their arguments that perhaps weren't quite there, which is exactly why I think the Supreme Court probably decided to take the case because it was by uh, by leave, not as a right. And um, so I think that's perhaps why like they wanted to clarify something, but it seemed like it was um, the argument that she was making was really nuanced that maybe she was introducing this, how this test should go. And so to have such a strong reaction to the other side's arguments seemed interesting because it's like, well, you already have um, an argument that's sort of like, you don't know which way it's going to go because you're, you're really asking for something that's really nuanced here that to have like such a strong opinion that you're not necessarily that you're right, but that the other side is so categorically wrong that um, seemed sort of misplaced. Yeah, that. Yeah, and maybe maybe I've made it all up in my head because uh, you know, like I'm I'm thinking about these issues of of civility and everything, and maybe uh, you know, maybe it seemed more than it was, seemed like it more than it was, but uh, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense, and um, I don't really, I I also couldn't find a lot of issues when I was watching it, Um, and I think in ours they were quite civil. Um, and I was I honestly, genuinely, it's one of those things like I always notice when I'm like, oh, man, I really wish I could do that. Um, the, <laughs> the government lawyer um, was just so calm and cool and collected and, you know, very, very civil in response to all both the questions um, from the judges, but also in response to um anything that, you know, quote unquote, the friend brought up. Um, I love you, the terminology. Uh, so I found that was really impressive. But um, when I was thinking, when we were going through uh, the ethics and advocacy, I, something that really sparked my mind, sparked in my mind, I should say, was um, the witness pre- preparation and mm-hmm. the like concept that that's, you know, an inquisitory, um, that, that aspect, you know, doesn't exist in every single system. Um, because 
in like civil law, I believe like the witness belongs to the court. So there's no need to have opposing witnesses. And it just, oh man, I don't know if you were in um, evidence with Professor uh, O'Byrne, but we yes. watched the staircase. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, this, <clears throat> I should, this uh, case would have gone by so much quicker if you weren't allowed having like 15 like witnesses from like opposing views. Yeah, it's uh, well, I, I find it hard anyway to compare the American cases to Canadian because uh, there were a lot of things that were said and done even in the staircase where I was like, oh, that's shocking. And then to come to class and be like, oh, yeah, they would never allow that in Canadian courts. And I think it was mostly in a sense of like the opening statement and and uh, even like the actions like of the lawyers kind of became a little more like grandiose. And I think Canadian courts maybe are just a little more reserved. So uh, you wouldn't necessarily see it. So I find it hard in general, like comparing American and Canadian, they do seem very different, whether or not the rules are that different, but the approach seems different. Yeah, no, that's absolutely very fair. Um, but as a whole, I always found the, the you know, witness preparation and the line between um, coaching, just like a very interesting concept. Like we acknowledge that, you know, witnesses are so like viable and and you know at will of what happens in the courtroom that we need to prepare them mm -hmm. but yet like we can't coach them and you're just like I don't know like that line just seems so arbitrary to me um obviously it, it in in theory of course like in practice you prepare you you know let them know what kind of questions they'll have how to how to you know exist within the courtroom etc cetera, etc cetera. but it just I don't know I just always that concept of, you know, kind of owning the witness and like kind of having your pick of witnesses and all that kind of thing is just, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't like, it. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I could see where you could get into a lot of trouble in that area, because if you think about you um, maybe have spent a lot of time with the witnesses building your case and you, when they say, when you ask a question and they say something it's may not be articulated in a manner that, um, or sorry, I should, I should say it could be articulated in a manner other than what they meant. And because you've spent time with the individual, you understand what it is they, they truly mean when they say something. And so for you to say, well, if you say it in this way, then this is perhaps better. You like, you're really putting words in their mouth in some way, but you're, what you're doing is, is helping them articulate what their message is and that I agree that that line is is so very very tricky <laughs> I don't even think I fully understand it like I don't know I don't I could tell you right now I wouldn't be able to go uh prepare a witness for trial right now and know what I would be allowed to do in terms of helping them um to prep for the process I think I would err more on the side of caution and just be like, okay, here's the process. Here's what they're going to ask you. Um, just take deep breaths and, and leave it at that. And, uh, but I don't know if you would be allowed to say much more than that. I still don't quite understand that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I'm at the end of my list. I don't know if there's anything else you want to uh, bring up. No, I think we've, uh, I think we've done a pretty um, good job of covering the course, uh, pat our own backs here, but um, uh, I really, I mean, like, you know, as we get through and, and do our exam prep, I'm sure there'll be a lot more questions even that'll be raised, but uh, this course definitely 
forced me to think about how I would approach things differently in, in a sense that like, I, I think I need to be more mindful of that there's not a right answer and how ethics is changing. Like you, like you said, like this ball is rolling, but um, to not even be as scared, I guess I would, would say, you know, when I, when I was shocked to find out that some things are, are definitely allowed that I wouldn't have even thought that would be. So I think, um, I think I need to, to go back to the drawing board and maybe understand the rules a little more because um, there's, there's more room than what I thought there was that let's just I'll put it at that way. So how about yourself? Do you have any final thoughts? No, I think I've really enjoyed um, this experience in terms of getting to do a uh, podcast. I think that this year has been <laughs> as, as we've even had trouble with our recordings, um, just in terms of internet access, but <laughs> it's been a very uh, different year. Um, and I think having this ability to both connect in class, like that the live version that was happening, as well as getting some of our classmates in here for a more detailed discussion um, has been really rewarding. Like I think I took more out of this course because of it. And I think um, just getting to explore some ideas that, you know, aren't necessarily in or like necessary for the course, but like congruent to them um, has been a really great experience. And yeah, thank you for doing this with me. It's been fun. It, it really has. I, I agree with everything you just said that uh, it certainly enriched my experience in the course as well. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for suggesting it. <laughs> Thanks. And to everyone listening, um, again, I had to come last because we are hoping to use this as somewhat of a review. I was like, I don't know. I hope you guys have enjoyed it as well. Uh, hopefully you learned something from our uh, discussions and made you think about something a bit more complexly. Yeah, I guess that's absolutely. it for us. This is it, the end of the project. Thank you so much and take care. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>